Amen. Thank you, Josh. Uh, I wanted to, before we get into the sermon, just say one of the things that we have consistently prayed as a church uh, is that God, the Lord, would work to make us a people who could plant churches. That is part of the vision of what we want to see happen in the city of Winter Haven. And of course, in order to plant churches, uh, we need church planters and ministry leaders and pastors and those those kinds of people running around. And God has begun to graciously uh, grant that to us. Most of them happen to be kind of in the 20 to 22-year-old range, which means they're a few years off still. Um, but Josh, Joshua, I should start calling you Joshua, then maybe everybody else will, and your mama won't get mad at me, because uh, he really is Joshua. Uh, Josh and uh, Bart uh, and others like Tony Ellswick, who's going to seminary, we have a bunch of young guys running around here who are preparing for ministry. And so this summer, part of what we're going to do is try to begin to get you acquainted with them, begin to get them acquainted with being up here. And I realize, um, when I was a when I was a younger preacher at Trinity Presbyterian Church and wasn't very good and have progressed maybe a little bit since then in order just to be able to be up here and kind of talk. Uh, One of the things that one of the elders there said is, look, there's a young guy who has not done this very much. He's not going to be as good as the other guy is, but your job as the congregation is when he's up there, take out your pen, take out your piece of paper, write everything he says down, lean forward, eye contact, and make him a great preacher. Right? And so we have a task before us as a congregation, not just to, oh, you know, let's see who's preaching this week. Oh, never mind, I'm not going to church this morning. <laughs> we have the task of taking these younger guys and making them great pastors and great preachers. That's your job. So they're going to be up here some this summer. Uh, not, not Tony, I think, is going to preach later in the summer at some point, but I'm going to have them lead worship some. Josh, thanks for doing that this morning. Uh, great job. So just know that that is part of the mission strategy of what we're doing, and so you're going to see some of these younger guys begin to get involved in some of those things. And I'm excited about that, by the way, because it's going to get us closer to the vision of what God's called us to. Uh, but it's your job to make them great. Uh, so think about that. Okay, um, my grandmothers are here this morning, so I'm pretty sure the rapture didn't happen yesterday. <laughs> the rest of you, uh, you know, I don't know. I <laughs> wouldn't be too surprised. But one of the things I was, I was, um, I was reflecting on is everywhere I, I, first of all, I cannot believe how it became national news. And then everywhere I went yesterday, it was this, I mean, the gas station to Lowe's to wherever it was I seemed to be, it was just this steady stream of mockery and sarcasm. And, and by the end of the day, I just thought, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure that we as a culture are in a better place today than we were yesterday. Um, because I think the last thing that we would want to mock and be sarcastic about and joke about is the fact that the king of the universe is going to come one day to bring us to judgment. It may not have been yesterday, but he's coming. And I don't think our attitude toward that day should be one of joking and laughing and <laughs> snickering. Uh, but all seriousness. And so we continue this morning in our series talking about that very thing, about uh, this, the second coming of Jesus as it is kind of portrayed to us in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24 and 25. So this morning we're going to read a little bit further in Matthew 25. Uh, it's probably a familiar passage of Scripture to many of you, this parable of the talents. Okay? So Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. It is printed for you in your worship folder. It will also be on the screen behind me so that you can follow along. 
So let's read together. For it, that is the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them as property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But the one, but he who had the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be, for everyone who has will more be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, this is God's word. Now, here's what I want to do this morning with this text. I want to say something that is going to require a lot of explanation for you, okay? And then just ask two questions. That's what we're going to do. So here's the main thrust, the main idea of this text. Is that when Jesus comes again, he's going to bring us to judgment. And that in that judgment, we will be judged according to our works. But then that immediately brings two questions that we have to answer, and those are just this. Then what of justification by faith then? If if the judgment is according to our works, what happens to the doctrine of justification by faith? And then on the other side of that, then if it's really a judgment based upon our works, then what kinds of works then will pass the test on that day? Okay, those are the two questions. So the main the main teaching, the main idea is that we will be judged when he comes according to our works. And then two problematic questions. What about justification by faith then? And specifically, what kind of works will pass the test? Okay, so first, I want to show you how this parable teaches. Jesus will judge us according to our works. Now, the main idea is just this. A nobleman decides to go away on a long journey, we're told. And before he left, he called his servants together, and he entrusted part of his net worth to each of them. So to one he gave five talents, to another he gave two talents, to another he gave one talent. Best equivalent uh, that, we, that we kind of know. It's not exactly clear, but most people say that a talent would have been worth something like 20 years' wages. So, in, in simple math, $50,000 a year, which is about the median income of a, of a typical American family, times 20 years. So the first guy was given $5 million. The second one was given $2 million. The third was given $1 million. And then the master left them, really, with no instructions. But it becomes obvious as... 
and you go along in the story that he expected them to put the money to work to increase his investment. So in verse 19, after a long time, he comes back, he calls his servants together to settle accounts, he pulled out the ledger to take a look at the numbers. The first two are rewarded because of their faithfulness. They've taken the master's investment and increased it. The one turned the five into ten. The other turned the two into four. But then the third servant did nothing with the master's investment. He buried it in the ground, Jesus says. And therefore the master punished him severely for his unprofitableness. Now, four things from this parable that Jesus wants to teach us about stewardship. Okay, four things, just four little statements. We're just going to kind of, boom, go right through them, okay? From this parable about stewardship. And the first is just this, that Jesus has made an investment in you. First, Jesus has made an investment in you, both broadly and specifically I want to talk about, okay? Jesus has made an investment in you, broadly and specifically. So broadly, what do I mean? Let me ask you a question, okay? What are your talents? Think about this for a minute. Let's take a minute. Let's make, I mean, even if you want, make a list. Just start to make a list if you're taking notes and you've got a, a pen there. What, what has Jesus invested in you? I mean, what, what has he given to you? Are you, you know, do you have money? Do you have a car? Do you have a house? Are you smart? Are you a good cook? Right? Do you have experience and expertise in parenting? Are you handy around the house? Do you have a green thumb? Do you have a certain expertise in an area? Or do you have spare time? In other words, are you a college student or are you retired? What do you have? What resources, what assets, what strengths, what life experiences, what talents, what passions do you have? What is uniquely true of you and your life? In other words, what circumstances and struggles... Have you had to go through and endure? Have you ever stopped to think about those kinds of things and just begin to make a list? How has Jesus invested in you? And then come to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, which we read a few minutes ago in our call to worship, and listen to what Paul says. The Apostle Paul says, what do you have? Okay, what do you have? What's the list? And then Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? Now, what are the implications of that statement? When Paul wrote there in 1 Corinthians 4, if you've been reading through 1 Corinthians with us in Community Bible Reading, you you probably have become aware of this. When Paul wrote that, he was dealing with a church that was using their differences to create divisions in the church. They were, in Paul's words, verse 6 there, being puffed up, right, in favor against one another. They were using their differences, whatever it was, kind of how they were unique in their callings and their talents, to feel superior to one another, Uh, to boast against one another. So Paul has to remind them, whatever you have in your life that you might use to put yourself above other people doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. It's a gift. God gave it to you. You can't use what doesn't belong to you and didn't originate with you to boast and exclude other people. That's ridiculous. So Paul's saying, God made you, you. But then those people out there who are different than you, he made them, them. And what makes you different from one another is not something you can, you, you can use to puff yourself up. God makes people different, with different likes and different lifestyles and different priorities and different personalities. And Paul's very careful, very, very careful to say that the church should not pass judgment on one another in these things because we're different. And the reason is, is because when Jesus comes, he will judge. He's the judge. 
It's not our job to judge and condemn one another because of our differences. We should rejoice in how God has made us different from one another. But I'm getting off topic a little bit. But I just want you to see God has uniquely made each one of us just the way he wants us to be. And to complain about your spouse and wish he or she was different is to complain. To complain about other people, you're accusing God who made them that way. And so what is uniquely true of you in your life? What do you have? What what has God done sovereignly in your life? He means to use you. That's why he made you, you. And that's why he's worked in your life the way he has. Okay, broadly, but specifically. Okay, let's specifically talk about this. If you're a Christian, then one of the teachings that we understand from the Bible is just this, that, that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and through faith you're united to him mystically in, in union with Jesus, then part of the consequence of that is that Jesus from heaven has sent the Holy Spirit into your heart, and when the Spirit comes into your life, he comes bringing gifts. We call these the, the gifts of the Spirit, or better, I, I think, the graces, the charismata, the Greek is, of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just, I pray for me, I'm in a rut in my reading, I, for whatever reason, because I have two young boys that are reading, but I, I'm really in this kind of young adult fantasy sci-fi novel phase that I can't get out of, and I need help, okay? Because I'm not broad, but I, so I've been reading, and I just finished reading a book called uh, Graceling, which is kind of this fantasy uh, novel about a society of people, you know, who... Among the society of people, there's certain people who have been graced with with unique skills and gifts. And so, for example, a, a particular person might be graced with the ability to know the weather pattern. You know what what if it's going to rain this afternoon or not. And so, the the king put that person in charge of his navy, of course, because they can kind of tell what's going to go on. And then another might be graced with the ability of telepathy. And so. You know, they would then be put to work by the kings to kind of work, or graced. And then this one girl, kind of the, the heroine of the book, is graced with uh, being a warrior. She's just an unstoppable warrior. Can't beat her. She's never lost a fight. And so it's just this whole idea of these people being marked out in the society as being very different because they have a particular grace that's operative in their life. And that, that's right out of the Bible. With the exception that it's not a particular select group of people that have been graced with these kinds of gifts and skills and abilities. But if you're a Christian, no matter who you are, across the board, the Holy Spirit graces us with particular aptitudes and skills, like teaching or mercy or administration or the gift of healing or prophecy or whatever it might be. Now, these things are not pedestrian. They're powerful, supernatural graces. In other words... You know, you're, you sit under somebody's teaching and you think, man, he's a good, good teacher, but it's not just that he's a good teacher. I mean, you walk away and it's like you've experienced this unusual spiritual power at work, right? Or you sit with somebody at lunch and you think, man, what a great friend. But it's not just that they're a good friend. When you, when you leave from being with that person, you're encouraged with their spirit. I mean, their words of encouragement are powerful in your spirit. They can change your outlook and your emotional reality. I mean, the, the, Bible, the Bible's word for this is anointing. It's this special, supernatural, powerful endowment of the Spirit in your life. So both generally and specifically in these ways, Jesus has made an investment of you, you, in you. You have a unique calling. What is that? Have you even thought about that? Okay, so 
First, Jesus has made an investment. Second, he expects you then to use whatever gifts and resources he's given you to accomplish his mission. Okay? So Jesus has a mission he's trying to accomplish in the world, and whatever charismata you possess is his investment. This is the teaching of this passage. In you toward the accomplishing of his mission in the world. So a spiritual gift or grace is not something you're good at, but the particular way God means for you to be active in the mission. Does that make sense? So Paul says in Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, be active in them. So whatever it is, whatever way that Jesus has specifically, you know, invested in you toward a particular function within the church and within his mission in the world, you're to be active and moving out in that gift. He's made an investment in you. You're uniquely gifted and called to a particular task, and he expects you to leverage that investment to multiply his return third. Third, he will come one day to settle accounts. So he's made an investment. He expects you to use whatever gifts and resources he has given to you to accomplish the mission. And the third thing that we would learn from this is that he will come one day to settle accounts. He will bring you to judgment. The master in the parable comes back from his journey and calls his servants together, together to settle accounts. I mean, that means that when Jesus returns, he will call us before him to settle accounts with us too. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you're still trying to figure all these, these things out, let me say again, we believe that Jesus is coming again. Right? Amen? It's true. We believe he's coming again. And when he comes, it will be to bring us before him in judgment, to pull out the ledger of our lives, or like it is in Bruce Almighty, to open the filing cabinet. Remember that thing? He goes flying because it's so, because every thought indeed is recorded in there, right? He will bring to light, 1 Corinthians 4, I just leaned over to Canaan and said this morning, this scares me to death. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and disclose the purposes of the heart. Every conversation you've had in your head. All the things you've thought but never spoken. All the deep inner motivations of your heart you may not even be aware of. They will all be laid bare and put on the record. Right, specifically, it's going to go like this, I think. On that day, Drew, I gave you, fill in the blank. How have you used my investment to accomplish my mission? You know, I did this whatever it is in your life. How did you use it for me and for the sake of others? He's coming to settle accounts and to bring us to judgment. But then fourth, the fourth little thing that I think he wants us to learn from this parable is just this, that the basis of the judgment on that day will be our works. Now look at this. The first two servants in Jesus' parable were rewarded for their faithful stewardship. The third was punished severely for his unfaithfulness, for his wickedness and his sloth. He's thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, verse 30. And so the Bible teaches from beginning to end that the basis for his judgment of us will be our works. So, for example, we read Jeremiah 32. Let me just run through a couple passages, okay? Jeremiah 32, 18, which we read as an assurance of pardon. God's eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. Romans 2. Verses 6 through 8. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Matthew 16, 27. 
from Jesus' own lips. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels, and then he will repay each one according to what he has done. And one more, 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Okay? So that's the main idea of this passage, that Jesus has made an investment in each of us. He expects us to use that investment to multiply and expand and, and live toward his mission in the world. He's coming again to settle accounts with us and bring us to judgment and the basis of that judgment will be our works. Now, there's a couple of obvious questions as we kind of try to wrap things up. And the first one is just this. Okay, wait a minute. Doesn't this contradict everything you always talk about when you talk about the doctrine of justification by faith in the gospel? Right? And you know what, what I mean by that? that? This idea of the doctrine of justification. That word justification is a technical theological term in the Bible that refers to a verdict or a judgment being passed. Right? The gavel in the courtroom coming down. That, that sense of verdict, right? You see it in this passage. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not guilt, you know, whatever it might be. This idea of this verdict coming in. Now, the, that ultimate verdict that we're waiting for on this day, see, what happens is, is it, the way this works in our hearts and in our lives, the, this ultimate verdict that we're promised is going to come one day, when we stand before him and he is going to, we're going to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, or... Depart from me, you worker of unrighteousness, whatever it might be. That ultimate verdict that will come when we finally stand before him in judgment is, is an, an existential reality we live with throughout all of our lives. In other words, what I mean by that is, is we, in everything we do, we're engaged in a struggle for righteousness. We're looking all the time for the verdict to come. We need that verdict, that, that sense of well done, good and faithful servant. We need it to come. We don't feel whole without it it's the way we've been made and so all throughout our life if you look closely you can see how all of our life is just this struggle for righteousness this this struggle to have the verdict finally come we're playing all-star baseball pray for us lord jesus two kids playing all-star baseball can you just somebody smack me in the back of my head and tell me i'm dumb for, for you know loading up my schedule this way right we're playing all-star baseball, and I'm just absolutely amazed every time I'm around kids and their dads at the baseball field. We have this particular kid on our team. He's probably one of the better He's probably maybe the best kid on the team, one of the better kids on the team anyway. Uh, but his dad, his dad is just, he's one of the coaches. He's absolutely just on him all the time, right? I'm sure you've seen this. And I'm not against coaches expecting people, things of their players, you know, being hard on him, all this kind of stuff. But this kid, he's just, every mistake is, hey, you know, catch the ball. You know, it's just this kind of, so I was just watching him. And eventually, the other day, he plays first base. And so his dad's hitting ground balls. And literally, every time, it's this number right here. Boom, catch the ball, look at my dad. And then throw the ball. Literally. Boom. He's going to say something. You know, I mean, it, it, I mean, and the kid is terrified. I mean, you can see it on his face. He's absolutely terrified. Because he, he, he's just waiting. He's so terrified. He's waiting that he's going to drop the ball, and he knows he's just going to hear, you know, this voice booming out, calling him lazy or whatever it might be. And I just thought, see, he just, he's looking. Oh, he, you know, boom. He's looking for the well done from his dad. You know, all kinds of ways you can see this in our, in our, in our um, culture, this struggle for this. We're wanting a verdict. We're needing to hear, you know, the struggle for righteousness. My favorite is Facebook posts. Right? Facebook posts like this. Here's my, this is my favorite, you know, kind of, you can just kind of see the struggle for righteousness in this Facebook post. Here we go. Finish the laundry. 
cleaned the house, fed the hungry, brought world peace. Now to sit down with my adoring husband and perfect children to eat the marvelous lemon garlic chicken grilled over mushroom risotto with an appetizer of bacon wrapped blue cheese stuffed mushrooms that I made for dinner. Yum. Right? Right? And that's, by the way, that's like word for word, except for the whole brought world peace part. But do you see, do you see what that is? I mean, what is that? That is, that is, I, I, that is the person who posts and then is checking the, the, stat, the, the, you know, the comments every five minutes to, for the well done. Well done. You're awesome. I wish my wife would cook like that. You know, whatever it might be. But that's what we're looking for. See, you see this. So we're looking, we need, we need the verdict to come. It's, it's everywhere. It's in everything we do with this struggle for righteousness. But what gets you the verdict? See, that's the issue. What, gets, what brings the verdict then? And the doctrine, doctrine of justification by faith says that the verdict comes through faith, not works. In other words, what makes a person right with God is not their good works, but that they're resting in the work of Christ for them. In other words, in Jesus, the verdict comes apart from anything I've done to earn it. And if that's true... I mean, the verdict comes down because of the work of Jesus Christ. It's not, I'm not waiting for it out there in the future. I'm not hoping one day, if I work hard enough, you know, somebody's going to kind of applaud and, and they'll say good things about me at my funeral and, you know, everything will turn out okay. But the verdict comes down in Jesus. Now, it pushes into the present reality and I don't have to wait for it. It comes now. That's what justification by faith teaches. But if that's true, okay, let's, we just have to be honest. If that's true, then what if, what is all this about the servant who's thrown out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is an obvious reference to what Christians refer to as hell, to eternal separation from God, you know, because he disobeyed. I mean, this parable seems to clearly teach that the faithful servants are rewarded for their faithfulness and the unfaithful servants punished. The basis of judgment works. I mean, it's the question I got last week from a lot of people, you know, that whole bit about, if you remember the story about the bridesmaids who were not ready, and so they kind of got to the feast late, and they knocked on the door from the outside, and when somebody came to the door, they were told, sorry, I don't know you, and they weren't let in. I mean, does that mean then, you know, does that and this and all this, does it mean that we get into heaven because of the good works we do? Is our eternal destiny determined by our works? And the Bible's answer, be ready, the Bible's answer to that question is no and yes. Now, before you start to throw rocks at me and stone me because I'm a heretic, let me explain, okay? Let's start with the no first. Is our eternal destiny determined by our works? Do good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell? The answer, of course, is no. No. Why? Because there are no good people. I mean, that doesn't mean people don't do good things. It's just if you dig deep enough, you will find that even our best attempts at doing good are stained with selfish motivations, impure motivations and selfishness all over the place. And the Apostle Paul is very clear, very, very clear, particularly in Romans and Galatians, that no one is justified by works. It's only through Jesus that the verdict we need can come because only Jesus loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. I mean, he... Not only, not only did he render perfect obedience to the law of God, but he was never impatient, not ever, not even once. Never condescending. Never lazy. You see, the promise of the gospel is that I don't have to wait until the day of judgment for the verdict to come. The verdict's in. It's in. 
That's what Paul means in Romans 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The verdict's in. And when I put my faith in Jesus, he gets my record of sin and disobedience, and I get his record of righteousness. So on the cross, Jesus, bearing my sins, was cast out into the outer darkness. You remember what he cried from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as he hung there on the cross, Jesus heard in his soul, depart from me. And he received my condemnation. But not only does he get my record of sin and disobedience, I get his record of righteousness. The Father now looks upon me as if I've obeyed just as Jesus has. And that means that no matter who you are, no matter how long the rap sheet is, no matter how full the filing cabinet drawer might be, if you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, and you can hear your soul, the Father say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because you've done good and been faithful, but because Jesus has been and you're in him. What goes for him goes for you. That's, see, that's, that's the gospel. So does the verdict come as a result of how well we perform? Is our eternal destiny determined by our works? No, no, no. But then yes. Because you see, to just say no and move on would be to completely deny the very thing the parable Jesus is teaching, you know, the parable Jesus is telling here is teaching. Not to mention all the other places in the Bible that also teach that those who are faithful will be rewarded and those who are wicked and unfaithful will be condemned. So if the doctrine of justification, not works is true, then how is it that our eternal destiny is determined by our works? I mean, aren't those two things contradictory? They are not. And here's why. See, the reason is that the reformers were fond of saying things like this. Though we are saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, okay, in other words, it's not your works that get you into heaven, only faith in Jesus, but saving faith is never without works. See that? I mean, the problem is that we've made faith a decision. (laughs) But faith's not a decision. Faith's a grace. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. That refers to the faith there. Not a result of works that no man may boast. But then, the next verse, watch. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the grace of God, which brings you to faith, will also empower you toward the good works which God had in mind when he created and redeemed you. That's the teaching of Paul there. In other words, you can't have faith without good works because they both come from the same source, the gospel, which is a living power that comes into your life to completely renovate you. In another place, Paul talks about it this way. He says in Galatians 5, 6, faith works through love. James, in his letter, to the churches writes, faith by itself without works is dead. And the idea in both those passages is the same thing. That believing in Jesus is like plugging your life into an electrical current. That there's a power, there's a new energy source. That's what that Greek word means there. There's an energy source that begins to power your life toward good works. Faith is not an intellectual assent to a set of truths about who Jesus is. It's not, it's not a decision that, that you make, you know, in the heat of some emotional crisis. It's much more than that. It's a grace that leads to good works. And this parable is not teaching that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. It's a warning to both good people and bad people. Because just like in Jesus' day and our own, there are lots of people who are completely convinced of their status before him and they need to hear Matthew has consistently reported throughout his gospel that it is those who do the will of the Father who belong to the kingdom. Those who listen 
and obey the teachings of Jesus. So, so see yes and no. But then one last question, and then I'm done. So how do you know if the good works in your life are really faith working itself out in love, or just you still trying to earn God's favor and love through your own moral efforts? How do you know if your works are not your works, but they're the working of the Spirit in you toward the mission Jesus has called you to? How do you know if you're resting in Jesus in your obedience, so that the gospel then is the operative principle of your life, or if you're still trying to put together a spiritual resume, you're just religious, right, toward the day, when you will meet God. The difference in those two things is the difference between heaven and hell. And that's what this parable is really about, and that's what's really helpful. And so here's the answer, okay? And you can see it here as we kind of get into this bit about the third, um, the third servant here for just a minute, okay? And I want to ask this question, and this is where we've got to go with this. Let me just ask, are your good works motivated by gratitude or fear? See, what's your heart motivation? We're not told explicitly the motivation of the first two servants, But we're told what was motivating the last servant, verse 25. The one who proved unfaithful, he was afraid. Look what he says. I was afraid, verse 25. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. He says, I knew you to be a hard man. And so let me just ask. When you think of God, do you mostly think of him as being merciful and compassionate and kind? Or do you mostly think of him as being demanding and harsh and exacting? See, if you mostly think of God as being demanding, then when you think of judgment, it will fill you with fear. And what will happen is you'll be motivated by that fear to try to do enough good to earn his favor. That's religion. That's following the rules. That's, that's you know, perform the necessary rituals, right, to appease the gods so they don't wipe us out. I mean, that, and that's what a lot of people are doing inside Christianity. Right, I'm going to be good. I'll go to church, okay, I'll give some money, you know, I'll do some of it because I'm afraid if I'm not good, then God will get me. <laughs> and do you see, do you see what's there? Do you see the assumption behind the fear? It's just this, that it's, it's, it's exposed by the fear. It's that God's not for me, he's against me. God's angry with me, he's not propitiated. And that's where, that's where the fear's coming from. It's, it's coming from this, still, it's exposing this unbelief. That, that I really don't believe at the end of the day that God has been propitiated and that he's for me. And if God is mostly demanding and you're afraid of him and you're absolutely terrified of the prospect of judgment, then I want to say, then when we sing the song we do you know, at the end of the time here, you need to really think about that because if that's true, you're not resting in Jesus. So whatever good works you're doing, they're not being energized by faith, they're being energized by fear. And that means they're incomplete because they're self- selfishly motivated and on the day of judgment, they won't pass the test. But see, the contrast then is to be motivated by gratitude instead of fear. To obey, right? And this is what we see here. Not to prove ourselves, but surely out of love and joy over what God has done. And that's the contrast that's being offered. Look at, look at what the master says to the first two servants in verses 23 and 24. Enter into the joy of your master. Isn't that great? I mean, are you joyful or are you afraid? Do you live in an, with an excitement and joy like a child on Christmas morning or with a moral intensity and a righteous scowl on your face? And when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Galatian churches who were moving away from the gospel back into works righteousness, he said, he just exposed them with this one question, what happened to your joy? Where'd it go? I mean, the gospel brings joy because it's finished. The verdict is in. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, I think what this passage asks us to reflect on is, are you brimming over with joy? Because God is overflowing with joy. 
He's not harsh. He's not cruel. He's not demanding. Look at what he's done in the gospel. And so gospel obedience is motivated by gratitude. We love because he first loved us. We forgive one another because he's forgiven our sins. We show compassion to one another because of his compassion to us. We're merciful because he is merciful. We're generous because he's been so generous to us. See, that, that's faith energizing good works. That's gratitude. And so let me just conclude. If you know that God is for you in Jesus, right? If your heart is, if the gospel is the operative principle in your life, if you know God is for you in Jesus, and that when you stand before him on the day of judgment, you have no reason to fear. Then and only then will you joyfully go to work in the areas where God has graced you to multiply his investment and to be motivated by gratitude for his kindness and mercy. And it is that work. See, it's that kind of work, faith expressing itself in love like that, that will bring the verdict, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. If, however, the gospel has not yet driven fear from your heart, and so you're not confident of the Father's love for you in Jesus, if you're still religious, and then you'll take your calling, your gifts, and your abilities, and your strengths, and your experiences, and you'll turn them into a righteousness, and you'll make them a way of drawing attention to yourself, trying to prove your superiority over other, other people, and it might look impressive, but underneath, there's no joy. There's no peace, there's no love, you'll be a coward. As, as Joshua prayed, you'll just be a coward. Like the third servant in the parable. Just hide. I'm going to hide, you know, away. I'm just going to bury it in the sand. There'll be no, no hope, no faith, no, no radical, you know, pursuit of the kingdom of God. You'll just be a coward. And the irony is you'll become, you'll become demanding and harsh and critical of everybody else. And so Jesus has made an investment in you. He expects you to use that investment for the sake of his mission. He's coming again, third, to settle accounts with you, to bring you to judgment. And the basis of that judgment will be your works. Uh, I think the teaching of this parable is just this, that the only way to be ready and prepared for that day is this, to plug your life into the power source of the gospel so that God might grace you, not only with faith, but also with the good works that he's looking for. And then on the day you meet with him and he offers you a crown as a reward for your obedience, take it, and just like the elders in Revelation 4, lay it at his feet in recognition that whatever gifts and abilities and resources you joined and whatever successes you met with, they are his gifts. And whatever gl- glory and honor there is to be had, it is his because he is the, the one who has accomplished the work in and through us. To Jesus Christ be glory and power and honor forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Can we do that? Lord Jesus, I pray that as we come uh, before you now to sing, reflecting on what we've seen in this parable, I pray that you would give us faith. This song requires faith. To sing, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of your loving heart. Would you, uh, as we uh, lift our voices in this melody, would you use uh, this time of reflection to bring the gospel to bear Uh, to our hearts, we confess to you and repent of all the ways we're still trying to build a spiritual resume that will gain us some sort of merit on the day when we meet you face to face. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, for making so light of your cross. Forgive us for making so little of your obedience on our behalf, for despising all that you've done for us in the gospel. We repent, and we pray that you would continue to work in us to increase our joy in the gospel, 
that we might go to work joyfully in the areas of our unique calling to bear fruit that would be to your glory and that would gather and garner for us the reward of the righteous on the day of judgment. May you be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. I am finding out the greatness of Thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon Thee, and Thy beauty fills my soul, for by Thy transforming power thou hast made me whole Jesus I am resting resting in the joy of what thou art I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart stand with us if you would Oh, how great thy loving kindness, vaster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvelous thy goodness, lavished all on me. Yes, I rest in thee, beloved, know what wealth of grace is certainty of promise and hath made it mine. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy My Lord Jesus, earth's dark shadows flee, brightness of my Father's glory, sunshine of my Father's face, keep me ever trusting, resting, fill me with thy grace, Jesus I am Resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou
had the, uh, the two lines in that song uh, that affect me is when the hymn writer says, um, as I work and wait for thee, and then, he, and then he goes to say, resting neath your smile, Lord Jesus. Earth, dark shadows flee. And so uh, as you go to work and to wait for him, the only way to accomplish the work that at the end of the day, when he comes to bring us to judgment, will last and will count is the work that is done and the waiting that is done uh, underneath the Father's smile. In other words, knowing in your heart that in your working and your waiting, the Father smiles on you. And that is the promise of this benediction. That as you go, the verdict is, is not something you're still looking forward to. If your faith is in Jesus Christ, the verdict is not still out there in the future. It's come. It's pushed back into the present and it's yours through Jesus Christ. So receive it. And know that in the promise of this benediction, the Father's smile rests on you. And then go and work. And go and wait. So then receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you. Smile upon you. And give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.